Our gospel reading today forms a sharp contrast where Adam and Eve failed to resist a simple temptation, don't eat fruit. Jesus undergoes far greater temptations than we can almost imagine. And so we hear from Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. When the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread, Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, Angels came and were ministering to him. Grace and peace be to you today as we hear these words of our gospel, these words of Genesis, and wrestle with their own meanings for our lives. I want to start with a a somewhat off-the-wall question. Have you ever been to the Holy Land? Have you ever wanted to go make that trip to Israel? A group from the congregation is is actually going, in a short while actually, to see the places Jesus spoke, the miracles he's performed, to follow in his footsteps. It's, It's a romantic idea. Now, I've never been myself, but I've heard it said that there are two kinds of Bible scholars, those who've been to the Holy Land and those who haven't. It's as if going changes you somehow. Going changes your perspective, your understanding. You, you, you are enriched by going in a way that you will never be the same. And again, this is a romantic idea. It makes that trip particularly appealing. I kind of want to go now. But this desire, this desire to go and to follow those footsteps of Jesus is, I believe, why this gospel story is so intriguing. Jesus out in the wilderness, fasting, overcoming temptations. Each temptation, we hear Jesus quote relevant, powerful passages of Scripture, cutting through Satan's manipulation with apparent ease, and seeing Jesus victorious over temptation after temptation after temptation. For us who struggle with our own temptations, maybe maybe we hear this and we say, I want to follow Jesus too. I want to see what he saw and do what he did. I want to walk that wilderness road. That itself can be tempting. But you can't. You can't follow Jesus here. 
even if you head out to Israel, even if you follow him into that wilderness, it's not that you can't go to the wilderness he went to. It's not that you, you can't go or that there's, there's condos there or something. No. It's because the wilderness, this wilderness is not meant for following. We may be celebrating the end of Jesus' life in Lent, but it's worth noting that this temptation happens at the very beginning, long before Jesus has called any disciples, long before he's, he's taught the Sermon on the Mount or done any, any miracles. There's a very beginning. He hasn't yet said, follow me to anyone. He goes by himself. For these temptations, he's all alone, and that's significant. Though Jesus might make these temptations look easy, I don't think any of us would find them easy if we had to deal with them for 40 days and 40 nights ourselves. So today I'd like to look at these temptations with you, to take each one in turn, and I'm going to do my best to help you think through what it would mean for these temptations to come to you. For though these temptations aren't always perfectly relatable, Jesus is human, yes, but he's also God, and that fact plays heavily into these temptations. Though they're not always perfectly relatable, I think each one is understandable to us. Now, think about that first temptation. If the devil said to you, turn these stones into bread, you'd laugh at him. I can't do that. But again, Jesus is God, you are not. But the devil could say to you similar things. He could to make this a little more relatable, he could say to you, if you were really hungry, 40 days in the wilderness hungry, would you steal to feed yourself? Look, there's, there's food right over there. Would you steal to feed yourself? You're starving. Just a little food. 40 days of hunger to push you over the edge, 40 days of one bite wouldn't hurt. One bite wouldn't be that big a deal. It's just to keep me alive. What would you do? And note, to understand this temptation, we have to acknowledge that this has to be a no-consequence theft. It's the, it's the jar of candy sitting on the table, totally full to the brim. No one will notice. No one will be hurt. You're doing them a favor by taking that candy away from them, right? It has to be a no-consequence theft because Jesus turning stones into bread doesn't hurt anybody. It has no negative impact on anybody. It's only pure benefit, like pirating music or speeding a little or sharing your Netflix password. Everybody does it, right? Jaywalking, everybody does it, right? It's no big deal. So would you steal? Would you take that food if it meant survival? Or what about the next temptation? The next temptation, the devil says, jump off this tall building, the precipice of the temple, we're told, and the angels will catch you after all the Scripture says they will. Again, I think the specifics of this temptation aren't relatable. None of us is foolish enough to jump off a building to see if angels will catch us, right? Please, kids, don't. But but the, the temptation itself is relatable. And Jesus' response to the devil demonstrates that it is. Jesus' response says, you shall not test the Lord your God, right? And testing God, oh, that, 
That's so easy to do. We see it in Gideon's story in the Old Testament, testing God with the fleece. We see it in Peter, as Peter sees Jesus walking on the water and says, Jesus, if it's really you, call me out of the boat. We want those reassurances, don't we? And there are those who take it a step further, not just seeking reassurance from God, but using the promises of God like, if you jump, I'll catch you. Using those promises for license. I I recently heard, literally, literally heard a Christian author saying, I dabbled in the occult because I was confident that Jesus would protect me. I ran into, into the practices of the occult to learn from them and grow from them because I was confident that, that God wouldn't let me be hurt. I hope this sounds as ridiculous to you as it does for me. This author has jumped off the cliff. The mature Christian may be confident that God will protect, have good reason to believe that, but the mature Christian also knows that The Bible says, flee temptation, not run into it, not chase after it. And it's so easy to walk carelessly into temptation. Now, finally, the devil stops the subtlety, stops being at all careful about it, and he says straight out. He carries Jesus to the top of the mountain and says, Everything you see I will give you, all the kingdoms of the world, all their power, all their glory, everything that works this way, I'll give it to you free if only you will fall down and worship me. Free, just worship. And as much as we might not like to think that we would give in to this temptation, I think this is the most relatable one of all. You don't need to be God to worship Satan. You don't need to be God to fall down and worship in exchange for power or pleasure or anything else. No, what is Satan offering? Total power and authority. You could end all war today. You could solve world hunger. You could cause peace to be everywhere, establish just governments, fix families, cure cancer, do it all. Whatever you wanted, anywhere you wanted, you could do it all. Satan's offering it all. How often have you wanted God's will to be different? Whether the course of world events or a single life, how many times would you have waved that magic wand to change that? If only we could change that. Now this, this is a powerful temptation. And if Jesus' response is anything to go by, I believe It was the most effective temptation for Jesus, too. For the other temptations, Jesus quotes Scripture and moves on with his day. But here, Jesus is riled up. He cries out, Be gone, Satan! As if this one got to him. And if we look later in life, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. What is Jesus praying? If only this cup could pass from me. If it could be different. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. If there were another way, Jesus would have taken it. But there wasn't. And so here, as in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus moves forward. 
And after that, one more quotation of Scripture, one more response, Satan goes away. The temptations are over, and Jesus has his victory. The, the angels come in to grant him relief. Jesus can relax, and, and if we allow ourselves, we can too. Because Jesus has done all the work. He's done the hard work, the impossible work, and he hasn't once asked us to follow him here. Here, he's on a path that he alone can walk. Setting, uh, uh, the, he's on the course of a series of events with only one conclusion, and it's a conclusion that he himself seems nervous to face. And this conclusion, this, this series of events, this, this fact that Jesus does it alone can make us uncomfortable. So we're invited as we read these temptations to sit in these conflicting emotions of, of fear and hope, arrogance, and confidence, faith, and uncertainty. We're invited to recognize our lack of control, and we're invited to simultaneously recognize our desire for control, to be in there with Jesus, fighting like he fought and doing what he did and, and resisting temptation ourselves. But as we talked about with the kids, what does Jesus encourage us to pray? Not strength to overcome, but lead us not into temptation. See, we see in Jesus that in some parts of his ministry, we stand on the outside. And we're looking in as he does the hard work. But that's okay. We're invited to realize that's okay. We might not be able to follow, but that's okay. Because when we let go of our pride, let go of that desire for control, and we put simple trust in Jesus, our inability, our own struggle with temptation, those things don't matter. They don't matter nearly as much because all we are left to hold on to if, if we can't control this scenario is Jesus. And when Jesus is all that's left, we know that he will not fail. He's the one who does it all, who does not fail, who will do it all. Because this temptation is just one part of his broader ministry, an important part, granted. It allows him to demonstrate his wisdom, his strength, his deep love for us. It allows him, as he resists those temptations, to stay the spotless lamb of sacrifice that atones for the sin of the world. But this is not the end of the story. See, in this initial contest with that ancient foe, Jesus comes out victorious and totally unscathed. Jesus won every one of those battles as if it were easy. But it's the totality of that victory that if you remember the curse of Genesis, which Sam just spoke, the totality of that victory implies that more is yet to come, that Jesus has an even greater struggle to undergo. See, on Good Friday, Jesus will not just take our temptations 
but our very sin upon himself. And it is there where Jesus does not emerge unscathed. As the curse promises in Genesis, Jesus has his heel struck. The serpent strikes the heel of Eve's offspring, but Jesus crushes the serpent's head, winning the victory once and for all. And it's there that there too we are unable to follow. It's not our role to be the one crushing the serpent's head. We're reminded like the disciples who wanted to sit at Jesus' right hand and left hand in glory, that no, we're again sitting outside, looking in. We're watching Jesus do the hard work. We're watching Jesus accomplish the victory, and that is okay. Because that is the point of the very gospel that we, we preach the good news that we share, that this was his plan for the beginning, that he would do the hard work, the work that not only was hard for us to do, but impossible for us to do by ourselves. He came to accomplish what we could not out of his deep and amazing love for us. Jesus came that we might let go of our control and let go of our fighting and let go of our pride and simply rest in the promise that what he does, he does for you, that you can be with him, and he does it well, and he does it completely, and he invites you into that very peace of God, which passes all understanding, which comes from knowing all that he has done, and which will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to do so many things that we want to do in so many ways. We want to help and cannot do by ourselves. Help us to recognize our limitations, to recognize that there are some things that Jesus has to do, and there are indeed some things that he invites us to do as well. Help us to know the difference between those things, Heavenly Father, and help us to join him on his mission, to share this good news, that the work is done, the gifts are to be received, that Jesus has won the victory. Amen.